0: All right, have a seat. Thank you for being here with us this morning, church. It's good to see everybody. Um, I, uh, yeah, I didn't get to be here last Sunday, uh, which was uh, bittersweet. On one hand, missing a week just felt like a long time since I've been with you. On the other hand, I just got to do something real cool last Sunday. I just wanted to share with you really briefly. Um, If you don't know, as a church plant, we have a lot of supporting churches, churches that from day one have invested in this new work being planted here And um, one of those churches, actually the very first church, um, kind of probably an unexpected one, was First Baptist Cassville, uh, which is where I went to high school. um, Is a church that's been around since 1895. And um, every year they host a global uh, missions conference where they bring in all the missionaries from all over the world that they support for five days to teach the church about the mission that they're a part of. And um, I got to be one of those, which was kind of humbling because it was like, the guy's like talking about his flight in from how he got, you know, he got the last flight out of Afghanistan and this family just got here from Israel. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to sleep at home at night tonight. I just got, so it was kind of weird, but it was also really cool that I was with all these missionaries from all over the world and I'm just here from Joplin and we were all sharing the same message and, and were motivated by the same call. And so um, it was also really cool that for five days, I just got to meet you know, hundreds of people who knew exactly what was happening here and who have been praying for you personally and who knew real stories and real things. And I just wanted that was incredibly encouraging to, to me, even though it was a long week. And I just want you to know there are uh, countless people that you will not meet this side of eternity who are praying for you today, who have been praying for you for years and who are invested in what God's doing here. And so it was really cool to meet them. It was really cool to get to, to teach about church planting um, to a, a church that's existed for so long and that was planted so long ago. And so I just want to remind you this morning that uh, there are those who care for you and are thinking of you and praying for you. At the same time I was doing that last week, Alex uh, preached to you from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. And Alex kind of led into a new portion of Hebrews that is very important. He introduced through scripture the idea, uh, an idea that's critical to understanding this book, and that is the reality that Jesus is our great high priest. One of the verses he preached on last week was verse 15 from Hebrews 4, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Today we're going to continue into Hebrews 5. And we are going to continue um, just leaning into the depths of that idea. I want to pray um, for our time. And then we're going to dive into Hebrews 5 verse 1. Lord, thank you for this day and for your church. Um, Lord, even as I read that children's um, sermon this morning, um, I just am reminded of how much you love your church and how much you Um, think of her and care for her uh, that you even you put a meal in place that we might remember who you are and what you've done Uh, lord i ask this morning that uh, your word might have that effect on our hearts i ask this morning um, that just this radical extraordinary concept we are about to read of might absolutely shape shift um, what we know about who we are for your glory and our good lord only you can do that work And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would do it this day. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. So starting with Hebrews 5, chapter 1, it says this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Amongst the people of Israel, the high priest played a critical role. So I want to take a few minutes and I want to consider that role both the priesthood and specifically the office of high priest in the days of Moses. Uh, this, uh, we, we originally see this priesthood described in Exodus 28. Aaron was the first high priest and all other high priests that came after him would be traced back to him. The author summarizes here the work of the high priest in this verse when he says that, the, that his job is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The primary job of the high priest was to officiate either directly or indirectly through lower ranking priests, sacrifices that the people of God made to the Lord. It was his job to take the sacrifices and he's the one that actually brought them before. The most important duty of the high priest was to conduct this service on what was known as the Day of Atonement. This was the 10th day of the seventh month of every year. Only the high priest, was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. Having made a sacrifice for himself first and then for the people, he then brought blood into the holy of holies and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, which was God's throne. All of this is described in Leviticus 16. When a high priest died, All of those who had been confined to the cities of refuge for accident, that's a place you went, not if you murdered, but if you accidentally caused death, you would come to this place called the city of refuge. But when the priest died, all of these people were granted freedom. And we read about city of refuge in Numbers 35. Basically, the high priest represented the people before God. He stood in their place and offered a temporary sacrifice to, his, to God for the sins of the previous year on behalf of the people. He was tasked with standing before God as a mediator for God's people. Verse 2 tells us, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The high priest that we see here was not merely responsible for the sacrifices, but he did do some other things as well. He was responsible for the work of the lower priests. And John 11 alludes to the idea that at least one high priest had the gift of prophecy. All high priests, though, is different, despite some differences they might have had, they were tasked with having a heart for the people of God. Whenever the role of a modern shepherd is described as priestly, It's this aspect of the role that's being described. Priestly work is a reference to the ability to care for souls. And the priests didn't work with the people who had it all together, unfortunately. But here in verse 2, they are described as ignorant and wayward. The term ignorant is most likely referring to those that didn't have a knowledge of God. And that's not talking about an impersonal, broad knowledge, but that's talking about didn't have a personal knowledge of God. This is an important term to consider because every Israelite, without exception, would have been well-versed in the law and the covenant. Like every Israelite had knowledge of who God was. This is incredibly important to remember. But just as it is today, having this general knowledge of who God is does not mean that one knows God's heart. And as it is today, This is demonstrated when one's life does not reflect godliness. This is the way we know and can distinguish the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. This is where the term wayward comes in. They were ignorant in that they they knew about God, but they did not know him. And the way you can tell the distinction between those things, the way you can tell the distinction between legalism and gospel is ultimately manifest in how one lives. Do they smell like Jesus? Do they live like Jesus? That is how that truth can be seen. And a lot of times that takes a great deal of time to know. Yet God, He did not task the high priest with being able to discern these two differences because he did not have that capability. He was tasked with caring for the ignorant and the wayward and all others who claim to be children of God because only God can ultimately discern who belongs to him. The high priest served God by laying down his life for these people. In the breastplate of the high priest, there were 12 stones. And the 12 stones in the breastplate were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. And on the shoulder straps were stones engraved with the names of the tribes. In this, the people of Israel were always on the heart and on the shoulders of the high priest. This is from Exodus 28. This demonstrated the burden God intended the priest to carry for those he was tasked with serving. The priest not only understood their struggles, but verse 2 tells us he was weak and and imperfect himself. He was able to understand this in a unique way because of his own weakness and brokenness. And verse 3 tells us because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. The high priest was a sinner too. He was not a perfect priest. Because of this, he could not enter the holy place on behalf of the people unless he first offered a sacrifice for his own sin. In God's grace, the sacrifice that he offered was, it allowed him to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But this sacrifice that he offered, both for himself and for the people, was merely a placeholder for the promised perfect sacrifice, whom had not yet come. The high priest was also a placeholder for the perfect priest who would bring that sacrifice. To serve in such a way was an incredible honor, and verse four says of this honor, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The priest did not volunteer for this position. The honor was not one he could appoint himself to. Aaron was the first high priest, and the people did not vote him in, nor did he apply, but God chose him. This is why Israel viewed the appointment of the high priest as the ultimate demonstration of God's authority, because he alone could appoint the priest to that work. Verse 5 says this, in comparing this to Christ. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In this verse, the author transitions from describing the traditional high priest to telling us of our perfect faithful savior priest. On one hand, he was like the previous high priests and that he did not appoint himself. The quote from Psalm 2-7 that was just referenced reveals that the Lord sovereignly appointed the son who willingly gave himself for the people whom he loved. And verse 6 tells us, and he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus is like the previous priests in regard to his appointment, being sovereignly appointed by the Father, he is also unlike him, unlike them, and that he is the perfect eternal high priest, and his appointment has resulted in the eternal salvation of all who depend on his sacrifice. But that does not get us past the obvious question of who is Melchizedek? What is that all about? What does he have to do with this? His name seems to just be randomly thrown in here. Don't feel bad if you're not familiar with this name because it's kind of a name that's easy to sneak past in Scripture. It only appears in two places besides Hebrews, and it's easy to look past when you're reading through Scripture. This name first appears in Genesis 14, 17 through 24, when we see Abram blessed by Melchizedek. And I want to read that for you this morning. Hebrews, or Genesis 14, 17 through 24, tells us this. After his return from the defeat of Chedorahoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. And said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the kings of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and let the share of the men who went with me, let Anur and Eschol and Mamre take their share. So there could be a whole separate sermon on that, but I just want to hit on a moment like the craziness of what just took place. Melchizedek is identified only just initially as the king of Salem. But then he does something very strange for a king. He offers bread and wine. This is a priestly duty. The author of Genesis then reveals to us that this king is a priest of the most high God. Like That kind of comes out of nowhere. This is a foreign king. This is not a king from amongst God's chosen people. This is a A foreigner who is is totally separated from this chosen race, the race to whom the promise had been made. Yet here, in this minor detail that the author of Hebrews brings back, we see the mystery of God on display. As he appointed him a priest to bless Abraham, the one through whom God would later establish his covenant. I just want you to, it's easy to miss the weight of that, but I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. God blessed Abraham, the man through whom he would establish his first high priest and his last. And he did this through a foreign king who shows up out of nowhere and disappears just as quickly. That is until Psalm 110 verses 1 through 4, which is what Hebrews is quoting, which says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of the eternal Lord that would come, the eternal Savior, the perfect high priest who was going to come, Jesus, our priest forever. He has offered once and for all a sacrifice for all time in himself, and through him we have been granted access to the Father forever. And this phrase from the order of Melchizedek seems strange in Psalm 110. It seems like, once again, this comes out of nowhere, so it has to mean something significant. And what this means is that like Melchizedek, Christ was appointed based solely on the sovereign plan of God for the purpose of the gospel. The high priests that we see established in Exodus, they all came from the line of Aaron. He had chosen a family. Through this family, the high priest who will perform this function will come. But at the same time, that is not the fullness of what God's doing. He also has established outside of that, because he's not bound to that, these gospel priests that can only be explained because he said so. It doesn't fit any of the other criteria. It's just, I said, I put this in place. The gospel's bigger than the fullness of what they understood. Christ was appointed based solely on the sovereign plan for the purpose of the gospel. And so in some mysterious way that we don't know the details of, this foreign king was approached by God and said, hey, I'm doing something and you're going to be a part of it based on nothing you bring to the table, but based solely on my sovereign goodness Christ's priesthood is a sovereign order for God's special purpose for a new people all people who are his he is not bound in his ability to save salvation truly belongs to the Lord and both Melchizedek and in a much better way Christ make that clear because Jesus is our better high priest in every way and that's what verses 7 through 10 are all about let's start in verse 7 It says this in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he is heard because of his reverence. Even though Jesus was perfect, what Alex talked about last week was that he still experienced dependence. He experienced the frailty of human life he experienced every weakness and sorrow and heartache that you've ever felt and ultimately he experienced death in the garden which is what's being referenced here by the author of hebrews we see christ deeply troubled by the torture that laid ahead the next 18 hours of his life would be result in not only physical but just spiritual pain the likes of which we cannot understand he is god but he also felt the weakness of the flesh in this moment. And thus, in the context of such, he told the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see that expressed through his prayers. In Matthew 26, which we'll read more in the weeks ahead, as we prepare, and specifically on Good Friday, we see two prayers. The first prayer is in verse 39, where it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed. Saying, Fa- my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here, in this moment of weakness, not sin, but weakness, Jesus, he uses this term, the passing of the cup, if this cup could pass from me, and he means If it's possible for me to not have to drink of it. He's not trying to get out of drinking of it, but we see here fully on display the weakness of flesh, not sin, but that Jesus is feeling real pain. He's feeling real anxiety in the midst of what's about to take place. But then three verses later, we see his second prayer, verse 42, which can seem like it's a repeating of the first, but it's actually quite different. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, Jesus did not try to avoid the cross. He knew full well the reason for which he came, for it was he and the Father's plan from the very beginning. And the battle lines had shifted for him between the first and the second prayer. Jesus was fully man, and it was not sin to feel enormous anxiety for the weight that he was about to bear, but the second prayer reveals that his ultimate desire was not to avoid the cup, but to be successful in drinking it to be obedient to the point of death, which he did and which the author of Hebrews describes in the next three verses. For it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We see here the peculiar phrase, Jesus learned obedience. Once again, as we said before, when we read Hebrews two, this does not imply that Jesus did not already know obedience, but in his suffering, his obedience was perfected, in part because it was proven. His, Jesus experienced the greatest pain in the, that the world has ever known, not only physically, but spiritually. And that he bore the weight of our sin fully and completely. And in the face of elevated suffering, we experience the greatest weight of temptation. That's why Jesus fasted through for 40 days in the desert. And that's when the enemy came to him to tempt him. But Jesus is the only one who has ever taken temptation to its absolute very limit. Only Jesus has ever gone the full eight rounds with sin and remained standing. C.S. Lewis explains this perhaps better than I. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong that it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense, know very little about badness because they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation actually means. He is the only real, he's the only complete realist in regards to temptation. What we see here is that Jesus understood suffering and temptation in a way in which none of us ever will because none of us have ever gone to the eighth round with it and surely if we, none of us have ever remained standing in our fight against it except on the basis and merit of Christ. His obedience was proven perfect under the weight of sin's maximum power. Thus he became As was always planned, the source of our salvation. Only He could atone for the weight of our failures perfectly and completely. Over these next few weeks, as we prepare for Easter, we celebrate the truth that Jesus went to the cross that He might be our perfect sacrifice. And he did not stay there. He could have made that sacrifice once and for all, but he did not stay there. He walked out of the grave that he might also be our perfect high priest. He is the one who not only atoned for sin, but who delivered the sacrifice to the feet of the Father. As we close this morning, I want to share that because Jesus is our perfect once and forever high priest, the work of the priesthood is no longer needed. Once our great high priest completed his work, God transitioned his people to be under the care of shepherds, to be under the care of pastors. Like the high priest, I have been tasked with carrying a burden for you in my heart and on my shoulders. Um, Some weeks that's an incredible joy. Um, Some weeks it's incredibly heavy. But it never ceases to be a privilege granted by God. This is where I'm going with this though unlike the high priest, I have no sacrifice to offer on your behalf. God is no longer satisfied with what you can muster. Instead, my task is to remind you over and over again for all of your days that a once and for all perfect sacrifice was already made for you in Jesus Christ. My task through the preaching of the word today, through the administration of communion today, is to tell you what God has already done on your behalf and to tell you that over and over again, redundantly for all of your days, to bring the gospel in all seasons. This morning, as you walk to the doors of the temple With your sacrifice in hand, I am tasked with informing you that the high priest has been relieved of his duties. Your sacrifices are no longer good here. The shop has been closed. The old high priest has been removed. For the Lord appointed a perfect high priest who completed the job once and for all, and he brought the perfect lamb with him so that none of your lesser lambs are needed any longer because it is his very self. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning Jesus is not the product of Aaron. He is eternal. Yes, he was adopted into the line of David in accordance with God's purposes, but his appointment was bestowed long before he was born, long before the world was spoken into existence. He did not take the high priest's breastplate from a man, but from the father. Like Melchizedek, he is our special gospel priest, appointed for God's sovereign purpose of saving you and I because God so loved the world that he sent him, his one and only son, to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, to be both our perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice so that there is no longer condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. So now because that is true, you are the temple now where God dwells. You are the place where he is chosen. The church is not a place for sinners to come and offer sacrifice, but for citizens of heaven to find refuge in the gospel, that we might be empowered to live as a kingdom citizen here in the midst of this hostile land while we wait our ride home. Through Christ and his word, we have a nostalgia within us for a land that we've never seen. This is the work in the Spirit. Uh, This is the work of the Spirit in us. This, This nostalgia that sometimes we can't explain is kicked up in us by the Spirit through the reading of God's Word and through the fellowship of being amongst His saints. If you are a Christian this morning, I want to simply remind you of who you are. You are not all of the things you identify yourself um, in the world as, that the world says you are. The world has all kinds of titles for you, and those titles are well and fine if that's where God's placed you, but that's not who you ultimately are. You are a son and daughter of the Most High God, citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That changes everything. That changes everything about how you live, what you fight against. The truth of what God has done in you is manifest through your pursuit of godliness that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you and aids you in your pursuit of. Do not stop fighting. Be who you are. Do not believe in lesser identities any longer. You belong to God. The great high priest has made that possible. If you are not a Christian this morning, I'm here to simply tell you, you need only to trust in him. Accept his sacrifice is yours because all yours are garbage. Like they stink. They were never good enough. God was gracious for a moment to take them and let them hold the place. But that's because he already had a plan for the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. Stop offering your your petty sacrifices, your good works. They just don't add up. Forget all of that and accept Christ and what he has done, and that'll change everything. You have nothing to bring to the table. Jesus brought it all to the table, and that is why he is the perfect high priest. Put your faith in him alone this morning. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, thank you for this day for the opportunity to be here in this place um, amongst other kingdom citizens. Lord, keep us from being um, defined by any other citizenship. Lord, you, might your appointment of Melchizedek remind us that we are not limited to any other tribe except yours. The title of yours, Lord, would that be the only title that defines who we are? All all other titles are lesser and temporary. Lord, would we bask in the reality that we've been made yours through our great high priest? Lord, would you draw us to the very presence of our great high priest? We don't have to be ashamed. We know our sacrifices aren't good enough. Uh, Lord, would we accept the eternal, incredible, magnificent invitation that you have given us. Lord, we are prone to deny that invitation either because we're afraid or because we are deceived. I ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be able to see past both and that we might not run from that invitation, but Lord, we might be a people who come, who's lay everything aside that we might come and take uh, hold of the inheritance that you've granted us. You are magnificent. You are all that we have. Would we know this? And would our lives uh, reveal this to be true? I asked this this morning. In the name of our great high priest, King Jesus, amen.